0: The definition I like the best is by Philip Bess. He's the director of graduate studies at Notre Dame. And he's a professor of architecture who specializes in urban design and theory. So he argues that the most beneficial way to understand the city is to understand it as a community of communities for whom the foremost purpose is to enable its citizens to live the best life possible. A community of communities for whom the foremost purpose is to enable its citizens to live the best life possible. That's the purpose of a city. Now, this is an interesting thing for me as a Christian pastor of a church in a city. Because the Bible, which is the book that my tradition recognizes as authoritative, the Bible begins by presenting a particular view of humans of creation, and of the creator. Now, in this biblical view, God's purpose for humanity is that humanity will flourish, and that it will flourish in the midst of a good creation, this creation that we call the universe. So, as you may or may not be familiar with, the Bible begins with the creator creating everything in six days whether you interpret that literally or metaphorically. Now, a careful reading of this piece of literature reveals that as soon as the creator begins to create, there's a gradual and progressive differentiation until eventually you've got land and sea and sky, and then you've got animals filling the sky and filling the sea and filling the land. And eventually, this this creation becomes a potential place for human existence. But more than that, it becomes the ideal home for humans. In fact, the second chapter of the Bible portrays the creator God as cultivating a garden and then placing the original humans in that garden in order to continue the cultivation of the garden. Now... In our culture, there's a romantic tendency to interpret this famous garden, the Garden of Eden, as an unspoiled wilderness. You get this in Disney, that unspoiled wilderness is pristine, it's raw, it's pure, it's good. But the majority of, of modern scholarship that specializes in ancient Near Eastern backgrounds, when they look at Scripture, they say that this garden was not a primitive place rather the garden of eden was a carefully landscaped intensely cultivated place it had orchards and, and things like this in other words many scholars who specialize in literature from that time period or they see eden as a typical ancient near eastern get this urban style garden Now, that's completely against a lot of kind of popular romantic views of what made Eden so lovely. That it's an urban-style garden. That Eden, in other words, shows us that the biblical view of these issues is not that the creator God of the Bible prefers rural life against urban life, but in fact, that the building of cities that we find throughout the Bible is part of, in the Bible's language, the natural and intended cultural development. So building cities is intended to be, it's an intended part of what it means to be humans. Humans were meant to build, to cultivate, and to develop cities. So in other words, there's this inevitable logic between being human, being embodied, humans have bodies, and building. So in fact, the Bible ends not in a garden, but in a city. Hello, hello. What do you think that means? (laughs) Testing. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, G. Maybe not. Is that one working? Testing. What do you think? What do you think, Barry? Which is try again? I believe yeah. Huh. <clears throat> so the Bible hello? The Bible ends in a city, and the city has a garden. So at the end of the Bible, there's a city coming down from heaven, and this city is filled with cultural development. So the overall arc of the narrative of Scripture is this. The Bible moves from Eden, an urban garden that is more garden than urban, to this city where garden is not lost, but it's a part of the city. So my basic point is that the Christian Bible affirms the development of cities. Strange. So my basic point in the midst of all this is that the Bible affirms the developments of cities. They're portrayed as the normative opening up of the cultural potentials built into the creation. And yet, the Bible is acutely aware of the power of demonic forces and the possibility for radical misdirection of city life. One only has to think, if you're familiar with the Bible, of Babel and Babylon and how they are portrayed and critiqued in Scripture. Now, with that basic, what I would call, biblical view of the city... As I, as a pastor, look then at our city, what about our city and what about cities here? Uh, Not in the time of the Bible, but in late modernity here in the West. Well, it's my observation that in our speed-driven society, we suffer at a fundamental level from atopia, uh, placelessness. Uh, that, that we are displaced people. And we see this from the dehumanizing urban sprawl to the crisis of rural and agrarian life. On both levels, we see this. Too often today, one encounters vast acres of asphalt, of which uh, one philosopher says there is no place to this space. Um, that there's lots of space, but there's no real emplacement. Now, unfortunately, over the last 75 years, the association of cities... Um, We associate cities with congestion and crime and pollution and fear. Along with the rapid development of the car culture, this has produced a flight from our cities. And so you get what um, some refer to as the donut hole in the city center. There's been this great flight from cities into a suburban area, and so we have this suburban sprawl. Now, let's go back to the definition of city by Philip Bess. A city is a community of communities... The foremost purpose of which is to enable its citizens to live the best life possible. Now this definition points to the fundamental communal nature of cities. And it's at just this point that the tough question arises, how big does a city need to become and still be a context for humans to flourish, right? Some people think of New York City as hell, right? Some people think that's not flourishing. So. If a city is about a communal, it's a community of communities. This is a really difficult question. An important way of approaching this whole issue is the concept of critical mass. The literal meaning of critical mass, if you're familiar with kind of nuclear energy, is it's the smallest mass of fissionable material that will sustain a nuclear chain reaction at a constant level. Now, with regard to city, critical mass is how many people... And how concentrated do those people need to be in order for friendships to be formed and coalitions to be built around specialized issues? So a city, you've got a group of artists who get together or builders who get together or um, religious types that get together or uh, people who are interested in this, that, or the other. So critical mass is this issue. How many people do you need so that people can find their little groups? Now, on the one hand, a very large population that's spread out and not connected may not achieve critical mass. So it's just not about numbers. On the other hand, you can have a somewhat smaller population like that of Harrisonburg that can achieve critical mass if there's a strong enough community of networks. So critical mass is, is more than just raw population, and it's more important than population population with regard to the issues that we're, going to dis- that we're discussing here tonight. But there's more. You see, all things being equal, if the job market is good, and housing is available, and the quality of life is perceived to be good, an area will naturally increase its critical mass. And yet, there are policy-level issues that can have huge influence on critical mass, even in a prosperous community. A city can unwittingly inhibit its potential for critical mass by bad policy, bad laws, bad plans. So this is where the word density comes into play. Now Eugene is going to show us that a density is not necessarily an overcrowded city. Density and overcrowding are not the same issue. And this is a very important point because a tremendous need for our city, for Harrisonburg, is that we maximize our critical mass by increasing our density in order for our citizens to have a higher quality of life. Look at it this way. Sprawl, urban sprawl, is the inevitable result of a large number of people attempting to live near the services of a city at the lowest possible density. Let's move out, let's keep some space, but still have the uh, amenities of the city. On the other hand, you could use appropriate levels of high density within a city to help a city function well and preserve its outlying areas, which I think you're going to talk about some of these boundary zones. Now, on a caveat, I want to conclude my portion of this. There are some incredibly encouraging movements afoot today with regard to this whole issue. One of them is called New Urbanism. Some people go by traditional neighborhood development. And they're recovering things like human scale and um, community-based development. And these movements are important. Again, Philip Bess. These movements are shooting straight for the heart of the contemporary building culture by first challenging and then engaging and converting the public officials, legislators, planners, traffic engineers, bankers, developers, and home building executives who are collectively responsible for the vast majority of new building being done in the United States. Almost all of which is in the form of sprawl development and almost all of which is done with minimal or no assistance from architects. Now that's Bess's argument i love new urbanism traditional neighborhood development i read it I, i like it but one of my problems with it is that it's 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 got a it's got a reductionism about it this idea that if we just get the built environment right healthy communities will inevitably result and the built environment is an indispensable part of urban community but i would say the built environment is insufficient. And and new urbanism too frequently in its literature doesn't take this into account because a healthy neighborhood not only needs good buildings, good restaurants, good sidewalks, all of that kind of thing, a healthy neighborhood needs virtue. Because you can have all... And there is a symbiotic relationship between architecture and virtue. A good neighborhood requires... A good city requires civility. If you've ever been in an uncivilized place, you don't want to live there. And new urbanism, too frequently in its writing, it rarely refers to the powerful need for civility, for virtue. So to sum up my presentation, and to tie it kind of all together, the foremost purpose of a city is to enable its citizens to flourish. Critical mass and appropriate density are indispensable for a good city. Tools like density bonuses, growth rings, infill, and models like new urbanism and traditional neighborhood development. These are tremendous resources. And yet, virtuous community is required. And it's not possible to build people into virtue. You can't legislate morality, and you can't entirely win the day through building. That virtuous cultivation is a slow and careful work of nurturing. And with that, I'll close and hand it over to Eugene.